Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We believe in the power of God's Word, and we pray that you're encouraged by this message. Now lean in as we hear from God's Word together. Uh, I'm excited because we get to continue our series called Having the Eternal Perspective in a Temporary World. And in this series, we've been talking about how God's values are different than our values, how his perspective on things are different than our perspective on things, and that we need to make sure that we have an eternal perspective in this very temporary world. And last week, we talked all about your value, what you're worth. And we talked about how God cares a lot about these sparrow kebabs that people are eating. He's like, they're two cents. And, and so he cares a lot about them. And so if he cares about these sparrows that have ever lived, how much more does he care about you? He cares about you. He loves you. He cares about you and knows you so much that he has the hairs on your head even numbered. I'll, I'll even say this, even just being injured like this, my middle son, Asher, when I was like wincing in pain, he looked at me and uh, as, as I'm like feeling like I'm dying from this pain, he looks at me and he goes, dad, are you fading? Meaning like, are, am I dying? You know? And I said, no, I'm not. But before I could even say, no, I'm not. He goes, well, who's going to take over the church? Is it going to be Devin? So uh, he values you guys too. Like he values your souls and, and who you're going, who's going to teach you. So, uh, but, but even it, it highlighted to me, my middle son cares that much. How much more does God care about us? He cares about us. He values us and he loves us. And today what we're going to be looking at here in Luke chapter 12 is we're going to be talking about having the right perspective on our money or on our stuff. And so if you have a Bible, what we're doing in this series, we're just journeying through Luke chapter 12. So you can go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 12. We're looking at verses uh, 13 through 21 today. If you don't have a Bible, you uh, probably have a smartphone, and I would encourage you, you could grab the Version Bible app and uh, go to the More tab, Events tab, and we've got a live event where you can take notes and, and follow along there as well. But while you're settling in, finding your place, I want to ask you a question. Be a little interactive here. What would you do with $10 million? What would you do with $10 million? Buy a house. Buy a house. Give it to church. Yeah. What? Share it. I like that. Go on vacation. That's right. Yep. I know what my son would say, buy a PC for his gaming. So, you know, there's things that we would all do for $10 million, right? And so a couple months ago, we were driving uh, home from Nashville and, and the, the lotter was like up at like $9 million, $900 million, right? Like something absurd like that. And so my kids were asking me, they were like, well, what would you do with that money? And I was like, well, you know, I'd do a lot of the same things. Pay off our house. I would uh, pay off the church's mortgage. You know, I would, uh, you know, set my kids up so that they could go to college, do the things they need to, invest the money, you know, so that it would make money for me instead of me having to, have to work. It would just make money. So, you know, all those kinds of things. A lot of things that you said. Even this week, I, I looked up how to, uh, what would, tips on spending $10 million. And so I found 10 ways to spend $10 million or seven tips for spending $10 million. And I was like, do we really even need help with this? Like, I don't know that we really need help with spending money, but maybe some of us do need some help. But it said a lot of same things. Go on your dream vacation. Spend your money on yourself like, uh, like you don't care. Like, uh, just buy things that you would never buy for yourself. Retire, invest. In fact, it said if you're over 50, you could give yourself a salary of $200,000 and you never have to work again. And so it gave all those similar tips. And it is fun. It's fun to imagine. What would you do with $10 million? What would the world be like? What would it look like that you would do? But as I was reading and looking up articles on, on how to spend $10 million, I came across another article that asked, what would you do to get 
$10 million? What convictions would you bend? What values would you break to get $10 million? And even right now, maybe you're thinking about some of that. Maybe you're thinking, okay, this is what I would do, or I might do these things, or I might invest it here, do these types of things. But as I read the stats of that, it revealed something very significant about our relationship with money. In fact, here's what it said. It said that 25% of Americans would abandon their family for $10 million. It said 23% of Americans would become prostitutes for a week. 16% said they would give up their citizenship. 7% said that they would kill a stranger. And 3% said that they would give up their child for adoption for $10 million. Now, I think it's pretty safe to say none of us here would do any one of those things. Like when we were thinking, what would I do to get that? We would not do any one of those things. But this week, as I was reading those articles on how to spend money or what would you do to get the money, what I realized is that our culture, we have a very slanted, a very distorted view when it comes to our money. And really the challenge that we're going to read about today, the challenge that Jesus is going to give us is that we need to make sure that we have the right perspective on our money and on our stuff. In fact, today in Luke chapter 12, Jesus is going to give us a warning. He's going to give us some wisdom and he's going to tell us a parable to illustrate what he's talking about. He tells us a parable about this farmer who who had a wrong perspective on his things. He trusted in his stuff, the things of this world. And so because he trusted so much in that stuff, he built bigger barns And Jesus gives a serious warning. He gives us a little conversation about our relationship with money, especially when it comes to greed. In fact, the title of today's message is, What Owns You? What Owns You? Because I think really that's what Jesus wants us to wrestle with in these verses. And so just like last week, what I want to do is give you a little context in case you missed last week, kind of catch us up to speed, see where we're at. And then what I'm going to do is walk us through these next set of verses, verse by verse, giving a little commentary to what's going on. And at the end, I got two big ideas, two things that I want us to walk away with uh, from this text. So if you remember last week, we talked about how in chapter 11, the, between Jesus and the Pharisees, there was, the tensions were really high. Like the Pharisees were trying to figure out ways to trap Jesus and, and, and try to figure out ways to, to kill him. Like it kind of sets the stage for the further persecution uh, that they're, we're going to read about with Jesus. And so we read that these tensions are really high. And chapter 12 says, in the meantime, meaning, okay, these tensions are really high between Jesus and the Pharisees. And it says, in the meantime of all of that going on, Thousands of people are gathering around trying to hear Jesus talk and Jesus speak. And and it says that there's so many people that they begin to trample one another. And what we're reading is that Jesus was teaching some very heavy spiritual things. He was teaching about hypocrisy, that we can't say one thing over here and say another thing over there, that anything that we say will be revealed. He goes on and he's teaching about not fearing man. He's like, so many of us, we're too fearful of what man can do to you. And he's like, the worst thing that man can do to you is he can kill you. And then after that, there's nothing else. And so he's like, if you're going to be afraid of anybody, don't fear man, fear God. God's the one who has the ultimate authority. God's the one who has the ultimate power. But then he moves on in verses six and seven. He's like, but don't fear God because God loves you. He knows the hair on your head. He values you more than even the birds of the air. And then, of course, going on, he, he talks about acknowledging Jesus before mankind. He's like, if you acknowledge me before man, I'll acknowledge you before the Father. And he says that if we have accepted Jesus, he gives us this gift of the Holy Spirit. 
And when we hit these moments, when we will be persecuted or tempted to not follow Jesus, the Holy Spirit will fill us up and give us the words that we need to speak. And so Jesus is teaching some very heavy spiritual things. He's talking about some heavy spiritual matters. And then out of nowhere, here comes this guy, this joker. He just kind of interrupts Jesus. This is what he says in verse 13. He says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, what do we learn about this guy so far? Well, we, we can learn right now that he's gripped by greed. How do we know this? Well, he interrupts Jesus right in the middle of his sermon. He's not waiting for Jesus to be done and Jesus kind of walks away and he's like, okay, now I'll catch Jesus here. This guy doesn't care about the thousands of people who are listening to these heavy spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching about. He, does, he seems to not care that other people are even around. He doesn't even seem to care what Jesus is even talking about. He just interrupts Jesus and he's like, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to give me what's mine. I need it. Tell him to hook me up. This guy cares nothing about spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching. The only thing he cares about is finding a solution to his earthly problem. Now, this demand that he's making is actually not uncommon for the day. It's actually very common for people to go to rabbis to say, hey, can you settle this dispute? This is going on. So it's not uncommon for people to approach the rabbis and the rabbis then would sort it all out. But here's what's funny to me about all of this and why this guy is interrupting Jesus. He's worried about everything here on earth, how he's going to get his, how he's going to get his money. But he's got the savior of the world, Jesus standing right in front of him, the one who will give him everything he could ever desire and long for is standing right there and he misses it. He misses Jesus. But we also see this man has a problem. Another problem we see is that he doesn't mind putting his brother on blast. Some of you might have some relatives, some family members who don't mind going on social media and putting you on blast, right? But he doesn't mind putting his brother on blast. Like we don't know the situation. We don't know why his brother was withholding the financial inheritance and all of this other stuff. But he doesn't mind putting his brother on blast. His brother might have turned red in the face a little bit, been like, why is he doing this? You know, maybe a little embarrassed. But then look at what Jesus responds to him. Look at what he says in verse 14. He says, but he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Now, when I read that this week, I was like, man, maybe Jesus said this with a little sass, you know, like at least that's how I read it. Like, man, who made me an arbitrator? You know, like, Maybe he said it like a little frustrated. Maybe he said it a little exasperated. Like, come on, like I'm in the middle of this and you're going to interrupt my sermon to deal with this problem over here. Oh, we don't know the tone. I don't know what tone you read into this, but Jesus is like, dude, are you serious right now? I'm teaching spiritual truths for your life. I'm teaching you some weighty, heavy things. And you just want me to settle this dispute between you and your brother. He's like, that's not my job. That's not what I came here to do. I think Jesus is like, I didn't come here to settle earthly disputes. I came here to save sinners. I didn't come here to be a referee. I came here to be a redeemer. Now, don't get me wrong. Jesus one day will come back to this earth and he will judge every single person who has ever lived on this earth. But that is not today. That was not his mission. That's not what he was there to do. And so Jesus takes this interruption as an opportunity to teach about another weighty, heavy spiritual topic, and that is greed. I think many of us, if, especially if you're visiting or checking out the church for the first time, you're like, man, 
or maybe you've been here a while, you might be like, man, of course, the church talking about money. That's all they ever want. That's all they ever talk about. Like, didn't we talk about this in James, just like in beginning of chapter five, like a month ago? Why are we talking about this stuff again? And I would argue that this is a heavy spiritual topic. The Bible talks a lot about what we do with our money, our finances, our resources. Jesus talked a lot about that stuff. And so I would make the argument that it is a heavy spiritual thing. Money is a deep spiritual topic. And here's the thing. Let me just put you at ease. I'm not going to tell you how much you should give. I'm not telling you to give. I'm not going to pass an offering place. You can just kick back and relax, all right? I'm just going to tell you verse by verse what the Bible says, and you take it up with Jesus, whatever you need to talk to him about, all right? So I'm not even talking about that kind of stuff. And so really what we see here is Jesus isn't stopping this heavy conversation. He's just continuing it. And he says this in verse 15. It says, and he said to them, and I want you to notice the shift, the audience shift that we have here. Because at first, uh, what we see is in chapter 12, we see Jesus pulling in the disciples and talking to them first. But as we continue to read here in chapter 12, we see that Jesus is talking to the brother. He's talking to this other guy who is withholding the inheritance. And now it says that, and he said to them, meaning that he's talking to the brother, he's talking to the disciples, he's talking to the, the sibling he's putting on blast. He's talking to the thousands of people there. He's probably talking to the Pharisees who are there in the corner judging everything Jesus is saying. And he's also talking to us thousands of years later. And so it says, and he said to them, take care and be on guard against all covetousness for one's life does not exist in the abundance of his possessions. Jesus here responds with a warning to be alert, to pay attention, to avoid all covetousness at all costs. Now, of course, for a lot of us, we don't use the word covetousness. So what we would say is be on guard against all kinds of greed. See, what Jesus is describing here is this unquenchable desire for more. See, greed is this unquenchable lust for more. I got to have more. What lust is to sexuality, greed is to materialism. I just got to have more. I got to have more. I got to have more. And by the way, I don't think that Jesus is saying that having stuff is bad, things are bad, owning things are bad. None of that stuff is bad. Jesus is just saying that's not where the good life is found. And so not only does he give us a warning here right out the gate, but he also gives us some wisdom. Again, in verse 15, he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. See, that word life here in the Greek is the word zoe. And this word means to live a satisfying life or a fulfilled life, a joyful, meaningful life. And so what Jesus is saying is that life, satisfaction, joy, hope, contentment is not based on someone's possessions. You are not what you own. And I know this is really hard for us to wrap our minds around, especially here in America, right? Like you are not your car. Your car is not an extension of you. I know that's what we're made to believe, but your car is meant to get you from one place to another. You are not your car. You are not your home. You're not your job. You're not your bank account. You're not what your job title says you are. You're not how many zeros are at the end of your name. And this is, again, really hard for us as Americans to wrap our mind around because we're told that our value and worth and identity is found in our job titles. It's found in our bank account. It's found in the things that we have. And Jesus says, no, you are not what you own. God owns you. God loves you. That's where your identity, that's where your worth, that's where your value should be found. Jesus is saying that living a rich life is not about you being rich financially. 
And just because you're rich financially doesn't mean that you have the rich life. This week, I don't know how many of you ever heard of Good Charlotte. I'm not endorsing them or anything like that. But, you know, like I remember lifestyles of the rich and the famous. They got so many problems, I think I could solve them, right? Like that's just kind of what went in my mind this week. Because rich people, they always seem like they have all these problems and they're the most miserable people around. Charles Spurgeon even said it this way. It's better to be happy than to be rich. And happiness lies in the heart rather than the wallet. Happiness, joy, lies in Christ, not cash. You can have cash and be broke, but you can be broke and have Christ and have everything you need. What Jesus is saying is that we can't serve both God and money. We can't serve both Christ and cash. For the believer, cash is not king. Christ is king. And so after Jesus gives this warning, he gives this wisdom. Now what he does is he moves and he gives us this parable to illustrate his point. Look at what he says in verse 16. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Now Jesus isn't describing someone who acquired their abundance illegally. We don't read about any kind of bribery. There's no theft, no mistreatment of, of, of workers or any kind of other shady activity. We don't read about anything shady going on here. Jesus is not telling a story about an unjust man. It's just simply of a foolish man who's not living according to the way that God designed life to be lived. So what makes him foolish? We'll look at what he says in verse 17. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. So we see there's this guy. He's got a lot of stuff. And he has so much stuff because he had an abundant harvest. And because he had an abundant harvest, he doesn't know what to do with all this stuff now. And so he has a conversation with himself and he's just like, well, I know what I'll do. I'll just build larger buildings. I'll tear down these old barns and I'll build up bigger barns to house all this stuff. You got to think 2,000 years ago when Jesus is telling this, because 2,000 years ago when you had an abundant harvest, it meant one thing, that you were blessed. Because 2,000 years ago, this was before, there was complex irrigation systems that were invented. You know, pesticides hadn't been around yet. When you had an abundant harvest 2,000 years ago, there was only one real explanation for it. I've been blessed. I got enough rain. I got enough water. You know, the soil did what it needed to do. The locusts stayed away. I've been blessed because God has blessed me. In fact, even the psalmist knows something about this. In Psalm 104, it even says, He makes the grass grow for the cattle and the plants for the people to cultivate, bringing forth food from the earth. It's interesting to me, this man, after receiving this abundant blessing from God, a blessing that he had no control over, a blessing that was more than he ever expected or experienced in his life, he has a conversation with himself and says, soul, we're good to go. Now, did he have options? Oh, he had options. Like he didn't have to have a conversation with himself. He had options. One, he could have taken this abundant harvest and because poverty was rampant, starvation was rampant, he could have easily gave away all the food to the poor and fed them. Two, if he was a wise businessman, he could have taken this abundant harvest, sold it, then taken the proceeds and given it to the poor and those who are in need. Three, he could have realized where it came from and he could have thanked God for it 
realizing that that's where it all came from and said, you know what, I'm going to be generous and I'm going to give it back to you, God, to further your kingdom. But he goes, I don't like any of those options. I'm going to go with option number four. I'm not going to do any of that. Let me just tear down these barns and build new ones. Let me store up for myself what I have. He's like, we don't need God. We've got all that we will ever need. He's like, I've made it. I can retire. Let me kick back, just relax, take it easy, have the time of my life. I want you to notice something, though, in this parable. I want you to notice how many I's and my's are in this parable. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you, you can underline it, highlight it, circle it, but there's six I's and five my's. In fact, look at what he says again. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will store my grain and my goods. I will say to my soul. See, selfishness and greed are our best friends. But selfishness and greed are God's greatest rivals for the human heart. This week, as I was reading these verses, it reminded me of what James told us back in chapter 4. When he's like, well, when you shouldn't make your plans without involving God, right? Like we shouldn't go and say, well, I'm going to go to such and such a town and I'm going to make some money there and make some profit and then I'm going to leave and I'm going to go over here. I, even this week as I was reading this, I was like, I wonder if James was one of the thousands of people being trampled on. Like he heard Jesus talking about that and so he kind of referenced back to it, you know? But what Jesus is saying is this guy never involved and never invited God into his plans. He just did his own thing, had a conversation by himself. Now, why did he build bigger barns, store all this stuff? Why did he do this? Well, the text tells us. He says, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. His goal is hedonism. Now, you might be like, well, what's hedonism? Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure and self-indulgence. It's this idea that I want to live for myself. I want pleasures. I want to be selfish. It's all about me, 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 I, I, I. Now, again, I don't believe that Jesus is saying that it's wrong with having things or saving. There's nothing wrong with that. Both can be very good. Even Proverbs talks all about this stuff. But what I believe Jesus is saying then and what Jesus is saying now is that the good life is actually not found in the accumulation of things, but in self-sacrificial giving and living for the kingdom. It's all about advancing the gospel to further the kingdom of God to save sinners. Listen, we may retire from our careers, but we never retire from the kingdom. We may retire from our careers. A lot of us, we're saving up. We've got the 401k, got the savings plan, got all these ways. You don't want to one day work for the man, right? And so we're all saving one day so that we can retire. But listen, just because you will retire from your job doesn't mean you retire from the kingdom of God. As long as you have breath in your lungs, as long as you can somewhat move around, you know, as long as you're able to talk, there are people lost and dying from their savior every single day. There are people lost and dying and going to hell who don't know the hope that we have. And so you may retire from your career, but you never retire from the kingdom of God. I talk to so many people who have retired and they're like, man, I'm just trying to redeem the time that I got left. Or or, man, I've retired from my career, but that doesn't mean that I'm done. I can't wait. It gives me more time to do what God has called me to do. Until the day that we take our last breath and we enter into the new heaven and the new earth, even then, We're still serving and worshiping God. 
We don't ever retire from kingdom work. But then look at what he says in verse 20. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? God calls this man a fool. Now, our culture, we would say, man, this guy is successful. Like we'd be like, man, look at all the money that you just made. Like, you're set for retirement. Like, man, you, you can just kick back. Yeah, kick back, eat, drink, and be married. The American dream. Have those 2.6 kids, you know? Like, have that white picket fence. You got it all. Man, you should be on Forbes. You should get on social media and be an influencer and teach us all how to do this. From man's perspective, this guy wins because of how he views money. But from God's perspective, God calls him a fool. Now, does this mean that he was a fool intellectually? No. That's not what that word means. He was a fool morally. Why? Because he actually made some very bad investments. The rich man made great earthly investments, but terrible heavenly investments. He invested in growing his kingdom, not the kingdom of God. This man had earthly wealth, but he lacked spiritual wisdom, and God calls him a fool. See, many of us, we plan for the future. Again, planning is good. It's a good thing to plan for our future. But I think all too often we plan for that next thing we want to buy, that thing we want to get, the trip we want to go on, planning for retirement, all that kind of stuff. I think so often we plan too much, spend too much time on that. We don't take enough time to plan for eternity. Eternity matters more than what we've got going on here on earth. Earth is temporary. I know for some of you, you're young in here and you feel like, man, it's a long time till I've got a busted leg like you, old man, you know, like, listen, it was just yesterday that I was walking and running around just fine. Like, trust me, health is temporary. Things are temporary in this world. It may not feel like it, but it is. Eternity is so much longer. How much time are we planning for eternity? What are we doing to making plans for that? So what does this guy get for all his actions? What does he get for his greed? What's his return on his investment, his ROI? Look at what God tells him. He says, this night your soul is required of you. What's his return on his investment? Judgment, condemnation, and death. That's what he gets. See, greed is like salt water. The more you drink, the thirstier you get. And it will eventually lead to spiritual death. It reminds me of what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8. He said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? People who are satisfied with the things that money can buy are in great danger of losing things that money can't buy. You can't buy salvation. You can't buy your soul. You can't buy joy. Sure, you can buy happiness. Like when you want that thing and you're saving for that thing and you finally get that thing, you can buy happiness. You can go to Disney World, the happiest place on earth. The minute you leave, it, you look at that bill, it's a little depressing, right? Like rice and beans, rice and beans, you know? I need to get back to get some more of that happiness, you know? You can have happiness. You can buy happiness. Earthly happiness is a mist, though. You're happy one second and you're gone the next. Jesus makes his point, though. 
He makes this point to the man, to the brother, to the disciples, to us thousands of years later, to the thousands of people who are gathering around him. And here's the point in all of this. Here's the spiritual lesson that Jesus wants us to learn. It's found in verse 21. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Here's the point in all this. Here's what Jesus is trying to show us. That when we do these things, when we act this way, we are this man. And Jesus calls him a fool. And for some of us, we hear that and we go, yikes. Like, it seems kind of harsh, Jesus. Like, why would you call me a fool? Because fool is one of those words that we don't like to apply to ourselves. We don't want to think of ourselves as fools. I mean, moment of truth, moment of honesty right now. How many of you, as we've been talking about money and greed and all of this, how many of you have thought of someone else, right? Like, I think we all think of someone else because we only tend to think of other people or supervillains as greedy. But how many times do we act like this man here in Luke chapter 12? See, what Jesus is driving at in this parable is that we have a heart issue when it comes to our stuff. The heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. We all have a heart issue when it comes to our stuff. Everything we have is his. Our treasure, our time, our talents, it's all his. And I run into this all the time in the church world. People go, well, I'll give God my time and my talents, but hands off the wallet. Or, you know, I give God my time, I give God my talents, so I don't need to give him my my treasure as well. No, it's all his. He's worthy of all of it. And so Jesus is saying, hey, if you are foolish and condemned, if you are greedy in your time and your talents and your treasure, you, if you are greedy in any way towards God, you are this man. We need to be rich toward God. So in the time that we have left, I just want to point out two big ideas, two things for us to, to walk away with in light of this section of verses. And the first one is this, that money is good, but it's not God. Money is good, but it's not God. Money is a good thing to have, but we shouldn't worship it. The Bible even tells us the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, many people say, well, money is the root of all kinds of evil. No, it's not. And if you believe that, then give me some of your evil. I don't want you to live in sin anymore, okay? So, but it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Greed is not good. Greed is terrible. It rots the soul and it destroys mankind. It dishonors God. Money is good, but it is not God. And when we forget this, when we reverse this, then that's when we fall into the trap of greed. And we act just like this rich man who has this idea to build bigger barns. Here's what this looks like in modern America. The average American home has more than 300,000 items in it. We consume twice as many material goods as we did 50 years ago. The average home has tripled in size in the same period of time, and still 25% of people with two-car garages cannot park either car inside their garage because we have too much stuff. There's an estimated 7.3 square feet of storage for every single American. Storage units are a $38 billion industry, and it's estimated that 90% of global storage facilities are here in the United States. This week, I also read that the average American has $15,000 of credit card debt. 
And I read that scientists say that it would take close to five Earths for every single person on the planet to live with the same ecological footprint as the average American. Those stats got me all warm and fuzzy and feeling good, right? There's a French sociologist, he says this, that in the West, it's not atheism that has replaced cultural Christianity. It's shopping. For a lot of us, things aren't merely things. They're identities. They're status symbols. And we know this to be true because of most of the advertisements that we see. They're not aimed at our prefrontal cortex, meaning, hey, this would be helpful for you. Advertisements are aimed at something much deeper than that. They're aimed at our deepest longings and desires, right? Like, I mean, think about Apple. Nobody does it better than Apple. Like next month, they're going to reveal their whole new phone and you're going to look at it and you've got the latest one, whatever number they're on now. And you're going to look at it and you're going to go, man, this is a piece of garbage. It's trash. I got to get me one of those, right? Like nobody does it better than Apple to make you feel like you have something new and it's garbage. I would argue that all of us have this nagging sense for more. There's never enough things, there's never enough money, there's never enough time in the day. Contentment for many of us just feels like it's just far enough out of our reach. So let me ask you this, with all of our materialism, are we any happier? All the evidence would suggest no. I think a lot of us, myself included, would say that we love God. We want to honor God. We want to worship God. We want God to be honored in our lives. I think a lot of us would say, man, I can't wait to get to heaven so I could hear, well done, good and faithful servant. For many of us, we love God. But we spend more time thinking about our possessions, past, present, and future, than being in the presence of God or thinking about God's presence. Jesus knows the lies and the allure of greed. So he gives us a warning He gives us wisdom. He tells us a parable to help us to watch out and be on guard against all kinds of greed. So this parable forces all of us to answer this question. What is my, what is behind my pursuit for more? What is behind my pursuit for more? For many of us, tomorrow when you go to work or maybe later today when you go to work, you need to ask yourself that question. What is my, uh, what is behind my pursuit for more? Because money is good but it is not God. And here's the last one, the second one. We're managers of his portfolio. One of the most important rules that you'll ever learn about money is that you manage it, you don't own it. See, the whole problem with this building bigger barns guy is that he looks at his crops, he looks at his wealth, and he says to himself, what am I gonna do with all my stuff? I know what I will do. I'll build bigger barns, and then I'm gonna eat, drink, and be merry." He mistakenly thought his farm belonged to him, but it did not belong to him. It belonged to God. We could say it this way. What you own does not belong to you. What you own belongs to God. I'll illustrate it this way. When it comes to the church, who's, who owns the church? And I, I understand, theological state things aside, I understand we all are the church. It's not a building and all that. But let's just kind of think for just a minute. Who owns the building? Who owns all this stuff? Who owns the church? It's God. If you're kind of thinking, I don't know, it's a good question, go back. In January, we talked all about what is church, right? Like we had a whole series designed on who owns the church, what's the church all about. Go back and listen to that, okay? But who owns the church? It's God. It's God. Yeah. When my kids, they were about three or four years old, they would always, when we would drive by the building, every single one of them would always say this too. They would drive by and they'd be like, Daddy's church. That's what they would say. 
Now, the reason why they said it is because they thought of it like a business, right? Like I, I'm managing the business and all that kind of stuff, but I don't own the church. I still, I'll even meet adults who go, well, it's your church. You do what you want. Listen, I don't own the church. Who owns the church? God owns the church. I just manage the church. But what if I went like, okay, next weekend, I get up here and I'm like, hey guys, you know, I've been thinking about this church thing for a little while now. And, you know, worshiping Jesus is cool and stuff. And I, I like it, but, you know, it's starting to get a little stale, a little boring. So, you know, I thought we could spice it up a little bit. And so I bring out some golden statues and I say, well, here's this guy, Zeus. And Zeus seems pretty cool because, you know, he's historical and he throws lightning bolts. Like, he seems like a cool guy. I think we should worship him. And, and also there's this guy, Thor. Thor seems pretty cool as well. Like, he's got a movie and stuff. Like, seems like a pretty cool guy. What if, I think we just worship all three of them. And I set up altars to all three. And I say, you just worship what you want. And you look at me and you'd be like, no. What's wrong with you, Nate? You've lost your mind. Like, we don't worship Zeus and Thor. We worship Jesus alone. But what if I looked at you and I said, who do you think you are? I own the church. You go, well, you've lost your mind officially. Peace out. We'll see if you get any better, you know? I would want a friend to put me in my place and remind me that this is not mine. It's God's. So I want to be a friend to you. And I want to remind you, it's not your business. It's not your house. It's not your car. It's not your bank account. It's not your 401k. It's not your job title. It's not any of that stuff. Everything you own belongs to him. And because of that, you should constantly be checking in with the owner to find out what you as the manager should be doing with your stuff. It's no less wrong for me to treat this as my church and I will do what I want in my church than it is for you to do whatever you want with your stuff. And so sometimes you need a good friend to remind you, it's not my money, it's God's. I'm just in charge of handling it. It's not my house. God, this is your house. What do you want us to do? You want us to open up your house for awakened groups? You want us to host a group, lead a group? God, do you want us to open up your house to invest in other people, to pour into the lives of other people? God, how do you want us to use your house? Have people live in it, stay in it? God, it's your car. What do you want us to do with your car? You want us to sell it, get a new one? What do you want us to do? Are you as the manager consulting the owner as it relates to what is his? For some of you here today, the action point that you need to take, it's a really fun thing, is open up your finances, look at your accounts, and talk to the owner about what's going on. And say, God, are you good with this? How about that? Oh, you want me to do this instead? And when you do that, you have an eternal perspective in your temporary world. You'll never understand the value of wealth until you start to see it from God's point of view. So what's Jesus' answer to this problem with greed? He calls us not to attach our hearts to the things of this world, but to something else. He invites us into his kingdom vision. Because later on, if you look later on in this chapter, he says, seek first his kingdom and these things will be given to you. And that's what we're going to be talking about next week. The answer to our greed problem is we seek first his kingdom, not our kingdom of wealth, status, or stuff. If we seek his kingdom, we have what we really long for, his desires, 
become our desires. And by the way, next week, it's not going to be prosperity gospel. It's not even going to be, hey, this is how you give to the church either. So don't be like, I'm skipping next week. You know, it's not any of that. Next week, we're not going to talk about prosperity gospel. When you seek first his kingdom, the load is going to rain down escalades on your life. Like, that's not what it is. It's not going to be like, he's going to give you thousands of dollars either, right? Like, the prosperity gospel is not in the Bible. It's not real. Jesus loves the rich. He loves the poor, just the same. So it's not prosperity gospel next weekend. But as we seek his kingdom, you're going to have what you're really longing for. Your deepest desires will be found in Jesus and in his kingdom. Amen? Thanks for joining us for this message from Awaken Church. We'd love to hear how this message or the ministry of Awaken has impacted your life. Let us know at awaken.church forward slash my story.